This is the New England Journal of Medicine COVID-19 update for October 21st, 2020. I'm Stephen Morrissey, Managing Editor of the Journal, and I'm talking with Eric Rubin, Editor-in-Chief, and Lindsay Baden, Deputy Editor. Eric and Lindsay, there's a new trial out this week of a potential therapy for COVID-19, the drug tocilizumab. Before we talk about the specific findings of that study, can you say something about the rationale behind such treatments? If it worked, where would tocilizumab fit into what we know about the pathogenesis of COVID-19? Well, I think it's fair to think about COVID-19 as being two superimposed diseases. First off, there's a viral infection. Of course, without a virus, there's no disease. And for those who develop symptomatic illness, the early symptoms are likely driven by the host response to that virus, as is seen with most other viral infections. And as in most other infections, once immunity successfully limits viral replication and the amount of viral shedding falls off, that's when the time in most viruses when the symptoms tend to resolve. But what is more unusual is in that a substantial subset of patients, there's ongoing inflammation after viral replication declines. It's not clear if this is the same immune reaction, the same inflammatory response that we see at the beginning, or it's a qualitatively different response. But in any case, it's this exuberant host response that likely causes the most severe symptoms, including ARDS. If you look at the disease as having these two phases, the first dominated by viral replication and the second by inflammation, then it seems logical that you might need two different therapies in order to treat disease. In the early stages of infection, that's when you'd expect antivirals to make a difference and to have their maximal benefit. Thus far, we have only one antiviral that, at least in one published clinical trial, appears to be modestly effective. That's remdesivir. There are other small molecule drugs that are in clinical trials. I'd also put convalescent plasma and monoclonal antibodies in that category as they're likely to exert antiviral effects and we're still waiting for reports of many other early phase agents. But one would expect that agents that block viral replication by whatever mechanism might work early in disease. Later in infection, when the problem is an inappropriate inflammatory response, we'd expect that anti-inflammatory drugs might be beneficial. And in fact, we have one example of that, the corticosteroid dexamethasone. Corticosteroids are potent if nonspecific anti-inflammatory agents. So our model would suggest that at early time points, you might block the appropriate immune response to the virus, and therefore drugs like corticosteroids might not be helpful, in fact, potentially harmful. And that's consistent with the one large RCT that's been done, the recovery trial, which showed there's a survival benefit of dexamethasone but that survival benefit was most marked in patients who had more severe degrees of disease, presumably those later on in the more inflammatory phase of disease. So as of now, given that model of pathogenesis, we're looking at two very different classes of drugs to treat COVID-19 patients. Dolor, rubor, calor, tumor, functional lotto. Those are the cardinal signs of infection known for millennia. Eric, when I think of those, such as when I have a paronychia around my fingernail and it gets big, red, and swollen, that's largely driven by the inflammatory response. 
there is a certain amount of microorganism that initiated the process and stimulated the inflammatory reaction that then leads to a lot of the functional disruption and discomfort. And I think, Eric, what you're doing is you're describing sort of the pathogenesis of COVID as we are better understanding it. But one of the key features that COVID is reminding us is that there is the primary injury from the pathogen, the virus, SARS-CoV-2, and then there is the host inflammatory response that can, in certain times, be exuberant and cause its own pathogenesis. And to some degree, this isn't new. We've known this for pneumocystis gerevechiae, PCP pneumonia, as we all have thought about it over the last 20, 30 years as AIDS emerged. And what we learned with that, that part of the pathogenesis of the lung injury was both due to the fungus, PCP, and the inflammatory response to it, where treatment emerged, where both we treat with Bactrim and we give prednisone or corticosteroid to diminish the inflammatory response that causes part of the pathogenesis. So I think this concept of both the direct pathogen injury and contribution of injury in certain circumstances by the host inflammatory response is something we've seen in other models and are better defining in COVID. And as you point out, it may not be simultaneous. It may be in phases. And defining the pathogenesis of injury then allows us to define how to target treatments that can ameliorate those aberrant pathways. So I think we're somewhat relearning a lesson that we learned before, but learning it systematically for this organism. I agree, Lindsay. I think what is unusual about this infection is, well, of course, part of it is that we just have a lot of cases, but the number of cases that do have that late inflammatory reaction is particularly striking. I think PCP is an excellent example of a similar infection. We've known for a long time that other viral infections can have these post-inflammatory sequelae, but they're awfully rare with most viral infections. So this is a little unusual just in the frequency of these events. And severity. You know, I agree, but I think it fits into a paradigm that we've seen before and is part of what has made this such a severe illness with such a high morbidity and mortality, which unfortunately we're watching emerge again across the nation. So coming back to the study we've published this week, what do we learn about the effect of tocilizumab? Tocilizumab has been considered as a therapy for COVID-19 since very early on in the epidemic. In my experience, this was being widely used at our hospital as an off-label therapy and widely touted by some people. Tocilizumab is a monoclonal antibody, which is directed against the interleukin-6 receptor, and it blocks the activity of this pro-inflammatory cytokine. We know that IL-6 levels are often elevated in patients with severe COVID-19, although this is not a widely available clinical test, so we don't routinely collect that information. So we don't know about individual patients in general. But I'd keep in mind that having high levels of circulating IL-6 doesn't mean that this cytokine is causal. It could just be associated, it could even be a downstream effect of the inflammatory response. 
But it is tempting to think that blocking it might have some efficacy in preventing the late inflammation that we're discussing. So in this trial, the researchers performed a multi-center RCT at seven hospitals in Boston. The manufacturer funded the trial and provided the drug, but had no other role in the study. Patients were considered eligible if they had a positive RT-PCR for the virus, although some patients also had a serum IgM antibody that was determined. And they also had to have two signs of disease and laboratory findings consistent with disease. The researchers excluded the most severely ill patients who required high levels of supplementary oxygen. The patients were randomized to either receive a single dose of tocilizumab or placebo. Some patients received remdesivir because a remdesivir study had been published at the time that this trial was underway, but none received dexamethasone because the results of the recovery trial were not yet available. They were allowed to receive other therapies, including other antivirals and hydroxychloroquine, whose use was still prevalent at the time. The primary outcome was the composite outcome of intubation or death after administration of the drug or placebo, and also a time-to-event analysis of this composite. Other endpoints included clinical worsening on the same ordinal scale that's been used in other trials, and discontinuation of supplemental oxygen for those who had been receiving it at baseline. The study was powered to detect a 15% decrease in the risk of the composite primary endpoint. They enrolled a total of 243 patients. It was a two-to-one randomization scheme, so the majority, 161, got the drug, and 81 received placebo. The patient population was pretty representative of disease at the time, with a mean age of about 60, and an ethnic makeup that fairly well matched the population that was suffering from COVID-19 at that time in the Boston area. So Eric, I think it's notable that these authors were able to conduct this study. As we remember six months ago, all too many of our patients were incredibly sick and we had no known treatments. And the ability to conduct a systematic study was not easy as we were all looking for treatments that might work. And there were anecdotes of hydroxychloroquine, tocilizumab, and several other agents that afforded benefit, yet there were not systematic data. And I applaud these authors for having the discipline and engaging their communities to be able to systematically study this pathway, given the logical thought that, of course, it should work. But as you pointed out, are elevated IL-6 levels a driver of disease pathogenesis or consequence of disease pathogenesis? And that's in part what they were able to systematically study, which also helps us better understand disease pathogenesis. So you've talked about how this study was designed. What did it find? Well, I'm going to give you two answers. First, the short version. It failed. At the end of the study, 17 patients in the tocilizumab arm and 10 in the placebo arm had either died or been intubated. And remember, there was a two-to-one allocation so that these numbers end up being statistically similar. The lack of statistical difference held up after adjusting for patient characteristics, and the secondary outcomes all seemed to go in the same direction. The one bright note was that tocilizumab seemed to be relatively safe in this population. But of course, having a safe drug that doesn't work is of limited value. But there is a slightly longer answer, which lives in the statistics. And I want to point out that you can say this about almost any trial at this point in the COVID-19 outbreak. 
statistics are useful for several reasons. And the way that we usually use them is to test whether or not the hypothesis that the investigators posed is likely to be true. And in this case, under the statistical criteria we usually use, the hypothesis testing failed. It's unlikely to be true. But there's more information available. So in addition to the point estimate of the effect size, the statistical analysis gives us a confidence interval. The 95% confidence interval in this case for the primary outcome ranged from 0.38 to 1.81. That's a pretty wide margin. Of course, it's likely that the effect size sits somewhere in the middle and most likely in the middle of the middle. But it does mean that it's possible that the treatment could be either helpful or harmful and have a reasonable effect size. It's important to keep in mind that the two agents that we've been using, the antiviral remdesivir and the corticosteroid dexamethasone, both would fall within this 95% confidence interval in the studies that we've already published. So there can be a potentially important effect, one that might make us want to use a drug based on the results of this. So why do I say that? Should we be using tocilizumab right now? No, these data do not support its use. I wanna be clear. We will be seeing more data about tocilizumab and in fact, all these other agents likely, and they may show different results. And I think it's important to interpret whatever results we see in the light of the confidence that we have in any particular result. We've published quite a few studies, for example, on treatments that don't appear to be working, like hydroxychloroquine. The confidence intervals in all of those studies are wide. Yet, the fact that they're repeatable suggests that this agent probably really doesn't have an effect. It's a little more complicated when we have single studies of agents like this one, at least at this point, and we are going to have to compare them. I agree, Eric. There's always complexity to studies when they're done and how to interpret them. I think fundamentally, when you have a disease that most people recover from, one has to be very cautious of interpreting an anecdote of someone sick treated who then gets better. And that's why these types of data are just so important for us to better understand if there really is a benefit of this treatment. Of course, the failure to show a benefit does speak to the exact patient population studied, the dose of the medication given, the timing and the illness when it is given. So there are always more questions to say, might this work given a different way or in a different patient population? However, I think these data are pretty clear that there is no big effect, no obvious effect of TOSI in patients who are progressing with severe COVID. And I think that's very important clinically, and it teaches us to be very cautious about over-interpreting anecdotes and ensuring that we develop systematic data to understand what really does or does not work. So with all of that, what kind of results would actually encourage you to use tocilizumab? I think it's important to put these results in context it's possible that there's a niche for this drug, but remember that its mechanism of action is as an anti-inflammatory agent, and we already have one that works, dexamethasone. Of course, it works by different mechanisms, and mechanism might be important, but the huge advantage of dexamethasone is it's widely available, 
it's safe, or at least we understand its safety because it's been used for so long, and it's incredibly cheap. So before we go with an expensive IV drug like tocilizumab as a frontline therapy or other investigational agents that are out there, we really would like to know how they work as either compared to dexamethasone or in combination with dexamethasone. And with this negative study, we're pretty far from getting to that point. So Steve, I think I look at this a little bit different than Eric in that we need to understand the mechanism, the mechanism or the pathogenesis of disease. And I think of monoclonals as immunologic surgery. So if we immunologically take out an aberrant pathway in a more surgical or precise manner, and it doesn't work, did we really understand the pathway of disease? And so I would want to better understand disease pathogenesis in terms of the aberrant inflammatory pathway to be able to decide if impairing one of the pathways of inflammation, such as the IL-6 pathway, actually will lead to benefit. You know, as we discussed earlier, are high levels of IL-6 a consequence of illness versus a driver of illness? Because one could argue there are other parameters that are elevated, such as ferritin, CRP, and we can list many parameters that are elevated. Therefore, anything elevated in severe disease, do we automatically assume that by lowering that level, it will lead to a clinical benefit? And for certain pathways, such as the IL-6 pathway, it is very attractive and there's a strong rationale. But these data do not support it as a disease driver, at least not a disease driver in this clinical phenotype of illness. So I think we need to understand disease pathogenesis a little bit more before we can determine which of these targeted pathways will actually lead to a clinical benefit. When targeted at the right time of illness, that that pathway is causing significant elements of the disease. Steve, since Lindsay addressed you to contradict me, I'm also going to address you to say Lindsay's wrong. Well, maybe he's not wrong, but he's a theoretical biologist, and I guess I think of myself as an experimentalist. I think the easiest way to determine the pathogenesis of disease is studies like this. We need to intervene rather than look at correlates of disease. And so actually, I doubt that we disagree with this. This kind of study is going to help us understand why disease occurs at the same time that it's testing a therapy. And I, I think we need this sort of thing rather than more measurements. So sadly, I have to agree with Eric in that what I think these studies do is they really inform us which pathways are most relevant to disease pathogenesis. And particularly with the inflammasome, which is very species-specific, disease-specific, and where in the disease-specific, it is very hard to have preclinical models that can really inform us of how to manipulate the immune response, the aberrant human immune response during active infection. Therefore, we must have studies like this to help inform us. Where do we go with IL-6, which was your question, Steve? There, I think we have to better understand the pathway before we can design more experiments that are likely to show benefit. But one may argue that we've done a reasonable experiment that shows no benefit. So is this really a pathway of interest or should we move on to other pathways where we may have a better chance of determining if it has a salutary effect? Thank you, Lindsay. Thank you, Eric.